Retired Vice Admiral Jay Donnelly joins the American Valor podcast today. Vice Admiral Donnelly graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1975 before embarking on 35 years of service, retiring in 2010. His decorations include the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, Legion of Merit, Meritorious Service Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, and various unit and campaign awards. Vice Admiral Donnelly is currently Vice President of Advanced Technologies for Huntington Ingalls Industrials, and he is a member of the Board of Directors of the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation. Vice Admiral Donnelly, thank you for taking the time to join us on the American Valor Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to join you guys. And uh, before I start, I just wanted to thank the both of you as interns to the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. You've done a really nice job and helped take our organization to the next level. So your efforts are greatly appreciated. And I want to start with that. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I am the son of a submarine officer and the father of a submarine officer. I was uh, born in Groton, Connecticut at the U.S. Naval Submarine Base when my father was going through sub-school there. And during my uh, childhood up through high school, I moved 15 times with my family. Went to high school all four years, longest I ever lived in one place up until that point at, in McLean, Virginia. Uh, I then went to the Naval Academy, uh, was a physics major there in the great Naval Academy class of 1975. I am a classmate of George Flynn, who was uh, featured in your podcast number four, I think it was. And, uh, and so we went through together. After graduation from the academy, I, uh, I did a quick stint at the Naval Postgraduate School where I got a master's degree in engineering acoustics, uh, which dovetailed with my uh, bachelor degree in physics. I was selected to the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program as a, as a prospective submarine officer. So I went through the, the 15 months of uh, submarine pipeline training and reported to uh, my first submarine out in uh, Hawaii. Um, I had a, a very successful and rewarding career, uh, including a command of uh, Hyman G. Rickover, a uh, Los Angeles class fast tech submarine, and then uh, command of a submarine tender, uh, the USS McKee based in San Diego. I went on to be chief of staff at 7th Fleet in Yokosuka, Japan, where I selected to uh, flag rank and uh, and then spent 11 years as a, a flag officer in various assignments that uh, culminated as the uh, commander submarine forces uh, headquartered in Norfolk, Virginia, where I was responsible for uh, all of our submarine force and had operational command of the submarines in the Pacific Fleet. I retired at the end of 2010 and uh, have been in the defense industry since. Uh, I currently work at Huntington Ingalls Industries, as you mentioned. We're the nation's largest shipbuilders. Two shipyards, uh, one in Pascagoula, Mississippi, where we build destroyers and amphibious ships and Coast Guard cutters. And then another shipyard in Newport News, Virginia, where we build nuclear ships, including aircraft carriers and submarines. And I'm standing up an organization to uh, coordinate and uh, oversee the spending of our research and development funds within the corporation. And I'm focusing on uh, unmanned undersea and unmanned surface vehicles, uh, an area that we want to move the company in, uh, into that market. Was your father influential in your decision to attend the Naval Academy? How did that play out and what did you learn in your time at the Naval Academy? 
I, I, I'm sure my father was influential. He was a uh, Yale graduate of Yale, uh, NROTC. And uh, so his naval career, I think, probably inspired me. Uh, it's interesting because um, these days, I think if you look at the military, more and more of our service members come from military bloodlines. And, uh, and certainly I'm no exception to that. I have three kids and all three uh, served as naval officers. Two of them married naval officers. So at one point, there were five of us on active duty uh, with the name Donnelly. And, um, and today we, uh, we have three still serving. So I saw my dad's career, you know, up close and personal, uh, was part of that Navy family, uh, relocating every few years. And, um, and so that lifestyle uh, was not foreign to me. Uh, I uh, was very fortunate to get into the Naval Academy. As you know, it's, it's competitive to go there. I joined uh, with George Flynn uh, at kind of the height of the Vietnam War when service in the military was not very popular. But I could certainly see the, uh, the, the importance of uh, uh, service to one's country and uh, and that kind of overrode uh, the popular uh, political sentiment at the time. Uh, your second part of the question, what's it like going to the Naval Academy? Uh, it, it's arduous. Uh, it is not your typical college experience. It's that plus much, much more. Uh, the academics are uh, similar to what you'd, you'd get in a civilian university, but on top of those normal um, academic requirements for an accredited major, you then pile uh, an additional course load uh, for your military uh, education, which could include uh, navigation, seamanship, uh, 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 propulsion, um, uh, leadership, ethics, um, and, and so there's always at least one additional course that you're carrying. I typically would have uh, between 18 and 22 credit hours a semester while I was at the Naval Academy. And, and so it does differ from uh, uh, the college experience that both of you uh, are going through, but in many ways it's similar. A bit more regimented, I would say. So after going to the Naval Academy, do you think that it prepared you um you know, more than any other school would have in terms of going into the Navy and then eventually going into the private sector? Well, I, it prepared me well. It's, it's hard for me to say more so than others. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great number of friends and colleagues that uh, have uh, performed extremely well with great honor and success who did not go through the Naval Academy track that I went through. But for me personally, uh, I felt uh, well prepared. I was, uh, um, I, you know, as I look back at it, 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 it occurs to me that the, uh, the values that I uh, learned at the Naval Academy have served me very well throughout my adult life. Uh, those are values of uh, integrity and honor and, uh, you know, uh, service above oneself and uh, those those things I learned at the Naval Academy that's not the only place you can learn those values but but those values I think are important uh, to a successful career going off you talking about your values you you once said that I will probably be best known as the person who introduced women to the submarine force and banned smoking on boats um, will you tell us a little bit how uh, 
about those decisions and how they positively impacted the Navy? Yeah, you guys have done your homework. Because uh, I think I only said that one time. <laughs> but uh, I, I I had a, a very enjoyable almost three and a half year, uh, almost four year uh, tenure as commander of submarine forces. And that's a that, that's a very wide ranging job with a lot of scope of responsibilities. And, and so when I made that comment, I was a little bit tongue in cheek because I, you know, I, I was immersed in, in every aspect of the, uh, the submarine force for almost four years. Those two items though, were, um, were the catalyst for a lot of change in the submarine force. And that's why I thought I would be uh, remembered for the, those changes. But uh, and, and nothing else that I did that I thought was worthy. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we put the smoking lamp out. That's what we call it, the smoking lamp. It's a, a historical context. But they used to light that lamp on the, in the days of wooden sailing ships. And then the sailors would come up and light their cigarettes from the lamp. When the smoking lamp was out, that meant you couldn't smoke. And uh, what we found is we did... Uh, we did a, uh, a very controlled uh, medical experiment on the submarines to determine the effect of secondhand smoke on the sailors who did not smoke. And uh, at that time, the, the area on the submarine where you were allowed to smoke was very restricted. And we put, we, we designated those areas which were very near the ventilation uh, intakes so that the, the smoke from the cigarette would be, ingested into the submarine's very sophisticated atmosphere control equipment. It's filtered and it's purified and it's uh, reconditioned before it's distributed out throughout the ship. And we always felt that that was, uh, that was done in the best interest of uh, health and safety for the non-smokers. And what we did in this medical experiment is we, uh, we took uh, urine samples from uh, volunteers um, uh, across the crew, uh, non-smokers, uh, while they were ashore, and established a baseline uh, of uh, a chemical in the urine that uh, is the byproduct of uh, nicotine. Then when the ship went to sea and it had been at sea for a, a period of time, those same volunteers gave a urine sample, and, and that was analyzed for this chemical, um, which uh, is produced when your body ingests nicotine. And uh, what we found is that the non-smokers were receiving significant exposure to uh, secondhand smoke, so much so that it, it caused this chemical in their urine to spike to a level that was uh, uh, commensurate with if you were, say, a bartender at a, at a bar where smoking was allowed and you were constantly ingesting uh, secondhand smoke. Uh, so it was the basis of that experiment that we decided that the right thing to do was to uh, to eliminate smoking on the submarine, not so much out of concern for the smoker's health, because that's a choice that people make, but for concern for the non-smoker's health, because they had made the choice not to smoke because of the, you know, the health effects, yet they were still being uh, exposed uh, to that secondhand smoke. So that's really the basis. And we went through a, a uh, rather extensive planning period where we, uh, we uh, tried to position ourselves for success and, um, and enable the smokers to uh, gradually uh, wean themselves from that habit, at least while they were uh, on the submarine. 
and uh, it turned out uh, to be rather successful. Uh, people uh, were able to drop the habit without any of the uh, problems that we anticipated we might encounter. Um, that's probably an overly long answer to, to that question. On the issue of women in submarines, it, it was always, a, I think, a question in the submarine force of not if we would bring in women, but when. And what we found is that, you know, to get into the submarine force, there's a very, very high uh, standard uh, required. It was a struggle each year. We bring in about 400 officers every year. And, um, and the bar is very high for their academic and uh, professional performance. And we were finding it difficult to get the number of volunteers each year that we wanted uh, from just a male-only population. And uh, there are some extraordinarily talented women out there that uh, we were overlooking who uh, actually wanted to serve and were fully qualified to serve. Uh, there's really no task on a submarine that uh, you know a very fit woman can't perform. It's more of a cerebral uh, warfare area. It's not hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat in the trenches. It's, uh, it's uh, as I said, a more cerebral uh, type of a work environment. And so uh, we made the decision that it was time, while I was a submarine force commander, to, uh, to open uh, the submarine force to women in a, in a, in a controlled and, uh, and thoughtful way. And uh, that's turned out to be uh, highly successful. And now we have uh, expanded that program since I left uh, active duty and uh, have uh, both officers and enlisted women on the submarines. So they're serving honorably and they're retaining at a, at a better than expected rate. And, um, and we've had very few problems as a result of the, the professional men and women out there that are executing those policies. What is uh, life like on a submarine for the submariners? How long do uh, they spend um, underwater and what what environment is that? You know, I get that question a lot, it, and it depends. Uh, the spaces are cramped; they're tight. A lot of people that uh, that don't have uh, you know direct experience with submarines uh, have had the opportunity to get onto one of the diesel submarines around the country. There are several museum ships uh, uh, that you can go tour, and and they are very very tight and very cramped. Uh, a U.S. nuclear submarine is much larger, and the creature comforts are much better. But uh, it, you know, make no mistake, it's it's cramped. Um, three, uh, three for the officers, uh, they generally sleep in three-man staterooms, and that stateroom is no bigger than a walk-in closet in most homes, and it has three bunk beds in it. Uh, the enlisted uh, sailors uh, sleep in in larger berthing compartments, again stacked three high. Um, but you can have, uh, you know, uh, 50, 60 people in, in a uh, single birthing area uh, sharing uh, very few showers and, and, uh, and sinks and that sort of thing. Um, so privacy is, is, uh, is at a premium. Uh, the only private space on a submarine is that six-foot-long, two-foot-wide uh, uh, bunk uh, bed that, that we call it that has a curtain that you can draw across it. Um, but, you know, there's some advantages to that. The crews on a submarine are very, very close-knit. They're small relative to surface ships. Uh, fast attack submarine, the smaller of the, the, the various types of submarines that we operate, has a crew of about 130. 
the uh, larger submarines, the SSBN, Ballistic Missile Submarines crew, is about uh, 160. Um, and, and those ships are twice as big uh, as the fast attacks. Life at sea, um, how long do you stay out? It, it varies. On the SSBNs, they have a very uh, standard drumbeat. They go out for about 77 days and then return to home port for about 30 days to uh, swap crews and, and, and do maintenance and, and reconditioning of the, the equipment before they go out for another 77 days. On the fast attacks, we generally, when we deploy, we, we take 120 days worth of food on the ship. That is the limiting factor is how much food you can carry. And we pack food into every conceivable space. And, uh, and we go out with enough food for 120 days, never really knowing how long you're going to be out. Uh, the longest I've been submerged uh, underway is about uh, 70 days. And uh, uh, there are many boats that have been out for the full 120-day period and, uh, and had to come back in to reload food before they went back out again. But it, it, that schedule on a fast attack submarine varies quite a bit. How do you think your career in the Navy prepared you uh, for entering the private sector? And how do you see, uh, you know, what, what kind of overlaps do you see in the private sector as well as in the Navy? Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, I encourage young people to consider uh, starting their career in the military. Uh, I think the military prepares an individual extremely well because you know, for, for success in whatever comes after the military. And the reason for that is uh, in the military, you learn self-discipline, uh, you learn uh, teamwork, you learn a lot of the, the skills that are, I think, critical for success in any field. For me personally, my long career, you know, 35 years uh, in the Navy, uh, long, long time. And when I finished my career in the Navy, my transition to the civilian sector uh, was, was you know, pretty simple. And uh, I am in a, in, working for a great company that has the same values that I learned and practiced in the military uh, of integrity and doing things right and, uh, and doing hard things well and teamwork. Um, and so it felt very natural to me. Uh, I think your uh, communication skills, your leadership skills, and all the things that, that are necessary for success in the military are the same things necessary for success outside the military. And so I felt very well prepared. And it doesn't matter, I think, whether, whether a career in the military is a four-year, three- or four-year stint, or a 35-year stint like mine. Uh, I think it's a good start on anyone's professional life to, uh, to begin their career uh, in the military. So you've mentioned some words about what uh, the military means to you and what you've learned through your time, such as integrity, honor, service, and teamwork. What does the word valor mean to you? That is a good question. I think, uh, and, and very pertinent to the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. I think valor is when you take those, those characteristics, those qualities, and demonstrate them in a and in a dangerous environment, like a combat environment or something where there's a lot of danger. And, uh, and so that would be the distinction is that when you say people acted with valor, I think it's that they applied those characteristics of selfless devotion, 
to duty, of leadership, of courage, of bravery in a case of great peril. Uh, in the military, uh, when somebody does that in combat, we award and and their and their and you know their performance is worthy of recognition with some sort of a, a, a medal. That medal is uh, awarded with a combat V for valor, and it's a V that is uh, attached to the ribbon or to the medal when it's won. And so, if you see a if you see a military person. Uh, look at their look at their ribbons, and if there's a V on those ribbons, that that's a person that served with valor. That that medal comes normally without the V, but if there's a V awarded, that means that that they performed in a way in an environment of great danger uh, that that warranted that recognition. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I think you explained that really well about the application of of some of the concepts that you talked about. I think that was, that was awesome. Yeah. And I think uh, Bob Feller is why we use his example uh, in our foundation as uh, the Actor Valor Foundation is, this is a man who was at the top of his professional baseball career. And after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he was inspired to go serve his country. He reported right after the attack and said, I want to serve in the United States Navy. And they said, well, great, Bob, uh, great, baseball player. You can be an inspiration to the troops. We're forming this team that's going to play baseball in exhibition games in Norfolk. And, uh, and as all the troops go through, you know, you can really rally the troops. He said, no, I want to go to the front line. Send me to the Pacific Ocean. And that's what they did. And he performed in that very dangerous environment with uh, courage and honor and leadership and, 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 and valor. And that's, that's why we call it the Act of Valor Foundation. I suppose our final question for you, Vice Admiral Donnelly, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Or what, what one thing would you leave our listeners with today? Wow, that's a, that's a tough one. As I think about all the advice I've received, uh, you know, nobody goes, nobody goes through life alone. And I think uh, if I look at, at my career in the military, uh, it was the result of a lot of teamwork, a lot of help, and I was just very fortunate to uh, progress as far as I did. Um, so I think um, the advice I got, and it probably came from a crusty chief petty officer when I was a junior officer, um, you know, he, he told me that, you know, th these people that work for you, uh, Ensign Donnelly, are, are very dedicated. They're very intelligent. They want the ship to succeed. They want you to succeed. You just need to kind of get out of their way and lead them. And over the years, I've kind of shaped my leadership style in a way where it was very collaborative. Uh, I was very blessed to serve in the submarine force where we have some incredibly talented people. The submarine force is all volunteer. Uh, we have more volunteers generally than we can take. And so we have a very high quality cut for people coming into the submarine force. They are really, really highly motivated, talented people. And so I would just explain to my, my subordinates what the goal was. 
here's what we're trying to accomplish and why we're trying to accomplish it and why it's important and, and get their thoughts on, you know, what do you think is the best way to go get this done? And then they had ownership of the uh, task. And, and because they had uh, been allowed to provide some input, uh, I, I think that, uh, and they had ownership of it, they, they performed extremely well. And uh, so I think that, you know, if I look back to when I was a junior officer, some of that leadership advice I got early on was, uh, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of types of leaders out there and, and you learn from each one that you're exposed to and you continue to develop your leadership style over time. But uh, mine was one where uh, I knew I didn't have all the answers. I knew my people were very talented and very motivated. And, uh, and so uh, we encouraged teamwork to the greatest extent possible and as a result uh, achieved a, a lot of successes. Vice Admiral Donnelly, thanks for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. It was a pleasure talking to both of you. And again, thanks for what you're doing for the foundation. And uh, uh, good luck to you both. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast. If you find value in this podcast, please help us grow by leaving a review, hitting the subscribe button, and sharing with others. Today's episode is sponsored by the book Walk of Heroes, Profiles of Valor, brought to you by Angels Touch Publishing Company. To receive your own copy of this book about the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in World War II, follow the link in the bio. Proceeds support the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation and our educational initiatives, including scholarships for children of military families. Additionally, you can follow the Bob Feller Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Act of Valor Award to receive updates on the Bob Feller Foundation, including the American Valor Podcast. This has been the American Valor Podcast. For Tyler Buckholtz, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. We will talk to you next time when we are joined by Guinness World Record holder, Marine Corps Reserve Major Chad Lennon. The Bob Feller Foundation is proud to present our seventh annual awards ceremony on Thursday, November 14th, 2019 at the United States Navy Memorial in Washington, D.C. Seven recipients, including members of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, Major League Baseball, the United States Navy, and Marine Corps, as well as a military child, will receive this year's Bob Feller Award. While seating is limited, we want you and your corporation, association, or club to have the opportunity to view this special event at a later time. This year, the Bob Feller Foundation is presenting remote hosting for our award ceremony. As a remote host, your organization will build valuable recognition while providing a quality educational experience for colleagues and customers. Aligning with the Bob Feller Foundation will strengthen your brand image and position your company as a thought leader to clients and employees. To host your private 2019 Active Valor Award Ceremony Remotecast, or for more information, please contact Peter Fertig at 516-901-5969.